So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Warren, and um, I've got this amazing privilege of sharing the word with you this morning. It's not something that I do often, but it's always really a privilege to be able to share from the word of our Lord. If you'll forgive me, one of the things that changed when we changed to a morning service was the angle of the sun on the projector, but on the, on the screen there. So yeah, just bear with me. You might have to actually read from your Bibles rather than reading from the screen today. Let's see how we go. So for those of you who are just checking out a church for the first time, or if you haven't been here for a few weeks, we've been working through the book of Jonah, who's one of the Old Testament prophets. And um, we started off quite slowly, it took a while to get through chapter one, but last week eventually um, we encountered Jonah in the belly of the great fish. And this week we're going to be looking at chapter three together. So let's turn there together now. This section is entitled, Jonah Goes to Nineveh, in the ESV version. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. There's a lot to talk about in this passage, um, but I, to this morning I just want us to look at four key points together. Those points are going to be the timing of God's message, the power of God's message, the reach of God's message, and then we're going to look at repentance, and that's the biggest of the points. But before we get into those four points, I also want us to first to look at this Jonah that we've just met in chapter 3 and contrast him to the Jonah that we met in chapter 1. If we look at the start of Jonah 1, um, we see that the wording is very similar, in fact, to the, the start of chapter 3, except there's a change of a very meaningful little word. And that change shows that there's been a big change that's happened in Jonah's heart. If we read in Jonah 1, it should come up now, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. When we read the start of chapter 3, that but changes to so. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. As Quint explained to us so beautifully a few weeks ago, a deep work had to be done in Jonah's heart before he would be willing to listen to God and to obey him. 
A deep work had to be done in his heart to change his story from a but story, the story of somebody who had rebelled, the story of somebody who had ran from God's calling, into a so story. That's the story of somebody who listens obediently. And as we read further into Jonah chapter 4, we'll see that although something dramatic had changed in Jonah's heart, there was still work to be done. There was still a deeper work that needed to be done. And that's what we're praying for as a church this year, that a deep work will be done in all of our hearts and in all of our lives, that we will grow deeper in our relationship with God our Father, and then that the love that we come to realize that He is lavishing on us, we will be able to spread widely to our city, spread it to our friends, to our colleagues, and even to people we don't know yet. What a real blessing it is. And what a relief that we worship a God who gives second chances. By His grace, He gave Jonah another opportunity to change his story from a but story to a so story, despite his earlier rebellion. And He can do the same for us. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a long time, attending church for all these years, and you're still struggling with sin, as we all are, or if you're somebody who's just checking out church, full of questions and full of doubts. God wants to write a new story for you, with Him at the center. But let's get back to our four points. So the first point is about the timing of God's message. It says, arise and go to Nineveh. Just imagine the scene with me. So Jonah was literally still lying on the beach. After being washed ashore, he had been vomited out of the fish's mouth, it said. And then God spoke to him again, telling him to get up and go to Nineveh. Isn't that an amazing example of how God can use you when you feel that you are just unable, when you feel physically depleted, mentally, emotionally depleted? Imagine Jonah. He had been in the fish's belly for three days. He was actually awaiting his imminent death. And now he had been spat onto the shore and God just says, go. Nothing is written about Jonah having any time to gather himself, to think about his wrongdoing, to think about how he had rebelled against the Lord. It just says, arise and go. I don't think that this only speaks about God's ability to use us when we feel inadequate, though. I think it's also telling us a lot about the urgency of the message that God wanted the people of Nineveh to receive. He wanted them to receive this message then. It was really urgent. We often don't understand God's timing, as I'm sure many of us can attest to. But there are some theories as to why this particular message had to be given then. And one of them is that God may have been using Nineveh as an example. An example of being spared from imminent destruction because they had repented. So just for a bit of context here, Nineveh was a great city and it was a very wealthy city at the time. But Israel, although they had been previously defeated in war, was actually also going through quite a prosperous time under Jeroboam II. And what we know from reading the Old Testament is that the people of Israel had a very bad habit of forgetting God in times of plenty. They had done so many, many times before. So what happened in Nineveh might have been the reminder that God's chosen people needed to resist from falling back into their old ways. And perhaps that reminder was needed urgently. You see, in this case, God's timing seems to have been really urgent. But then at other times, God's timing seems really slow. When will that friend of mine who's a non-believer actually come to faith? Or when will my child who is sick get better? When will you answer my prayers, Lord? And the reality 
that we have to face is that God's time, or God time as I've termed it here, is different to man time. And because of that, it doesn't always make sense to us. Albert Einstein came up with the theory of relativity. And uh, I know there's teachers and, and academics in the room, so you'll forgive me, but to attempt to put some aspects of the theory of relativity simply, time is perceived relatively or differently based on the effect that Earth's gravity is having on that position. I know it sounds very confusing, but basically the higher up you are above the Earth's core, the weaker the gravitational pull, and then the faster time moves at that point. Mind-blowing. <laughs> GPS, which we rely on in navigating, whether it be in a car, on a plane, or a boat, or even when we're walking, um, it uses those GPS satellites, and those satellites orbit way above the Earth. So the formulas that they use to make that information from those satellites applicable and accurate for us when navigating on Earth only work because Einstein's theory of relativity has been applied. Otherwise, GPS would actually be really inaccurate for us. And the point that I'm trying to make with this very confusing and complicated detour is that time is perceived based on a frame of reference, and our frame of reference is not always the one that we should trust. In fact, sometimes it's actually critical that we trust another frame of reference, just like with GPS. God's timing <coughs> pardon me, is different to our timing. It moves at different speeds to our timing, but we can rest assured that God has a purposeful time for everything, and we need to learn to trust that timing, whether it be urgent or if it be slow. Point number two is about the power of God's message. So Jonah probably didn't feel like he had any capacity to give God's message then. He was undoubtedly tired, and he was very hungry, three days inside the fish's belly. He was an emotional wreck after his near-death experience. But he wasn't going by his own power. He was going by God's power. And the power of the message that he was sent to deliver, and the effect that that message had on the people of Nineveh, went far beyond the power of an ordinary man, even a prophet. Because remember, Jonah was a foreigner. He was walking into a Gentile land. He might have been declaring the message in a broken form of the local language. He may even have been speaking a different language to the people of Nineveh. But the words that he said were powerful. We read that he had walked for a day and then he declared, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. When I was preparing for the sermon, I was so struck by this. He walked for a day deep into enemy territory. This was Nineveh, part of the Assyrian Empire that had defeated Israel in war, and Jonah walked for a day deep into the city and declared that the inhabitants would be destroyed. What courage that must have taken. Only a supernatural courage would give you the boldness to do that. A supernatural courage and faith. Faith in a powerful God with a more powerful message. Jonah may have elaborated on the message, but we aren't told that either. An elaboration wasn't necessary. God's word was sufficient. And that should be an encouragement to all of us here today, that when sharing the faith, God's word is powerful. It isn't up to us. It isn't us, up to us and our beautiful words. We rely on God's word and the Holy Spirit to do work in people's hearts and in their lives. God's message was so powerful 
that the king of Nineveh didn't even have to hear it from Jonah himself. We don't read about Jonah being granted an audience with the king. The passage says the word reached the king. The message was so powerful and so irresistible that the king didn't even have to hear it from Jonah in person to believe it. And not only did he believe it, he was actually so convicted by this message that he issued a royal decree that the people of Nineveh should mourn and repent of their wicked ways. And if we think about that mourning, even the method of their mourning was probably unusual. I mean, they were told to wear sackcloth and sit in ashes. That might not have been the custom in Nineveh at the time. But in recognition of the power of Yahweh, the Lord, the king himself did this. And he decreed also that his people should do this and fast. And interestingly, not only the people had to fast, but the animals too. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever seen a goat or a sheep that's actually not chewing. So I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for the shepherds to stop the animals from eating and drinking. The only thing more difficult than that, I think, must have been trying to get the livestock into sackcloth as the king ordered them to. I mean, it's, it's a funny image, but what a display of the recognition of God's power that the king said the people should go to such lengths. You see, not only was the message a powerful message, but it was a message from a powerful God, the creator of all things, the God who has no master, who has no limitation. The people of Nineveh were confronted with that true, awesome nature of God after only hearing a few words from Jonah. When we read in Job 34, we see how the Israelites recognized God's power, and now the Ninevites were suddenly aware of it too. In Job 34 verse 14 it says, If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. If he should set his heart to it, all flesh would perish. That was a truly terrifying thought and now the Ninevites had that thought too and they knew that they were in the firing line. But the converse is also true. If he should set his heart to it, all can also be saved even the sinful the gentile nation of Nineveh and what a reassurance that also should be for us today because as that deep work that Quinn spoke about continues in our hearts we also often confronted by our own shortcomings we're confronted by the sin that's in our own hearts but we worship a God who has set his heart to saving us through his son Jesus and that message is powerful the third point is about the reach of the message. Because, I mean, this message went to Nineveh and beyond Nineveh. And it was something that I really struggled with preparing for today. Was why Nineveh? I did a bit of research about Nineveh, and this is what I found. It said Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire, which was the empire which had defeated and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in war. And had taken Judah, the southern kingdom, to be a vassal state or a almost like a slave state for a hundred years. Assyria or the Assyrian Empire was an empire known for mistreatment. Not only its mistreatment of the Israelites and surrounding nations, it was also known for the terrible things that were actually happening within the cities. And Nineveh was no exception. Some of Nineveh's sins are shared in the book of Nam. And they include plotting against God, idolatry, shedding blood, lying, plundering, enslaving nations. I mean, if you could imagine a place which was in Israel's bad books, 
and there might have been a few, Nineveh would have been pretty close to the top of that list. Yet God decided to send Jonah there with a warning, knowing that they would repent and be spared. God knew that they would repent, just as he knew that they needed somebody to literally put the fear of God into them to get them to do it. Jonah also knew that they would repent and be spared. And that was one of the things that upset him so much. He was probably thinking, just like I was, but why Nineveh, a place of idol worship, a place of so much evil? Well, perhaps God was showing that he has the capacity to forgive anyone, no matter how grave your sin, if you truly repent. He was showing his love for all of his creation. It wasn't just spared to his, his chosen people. And I'm sneaking ahead a little bit here, but we see in God's heart for his creation in Jonah 4 verse 11 when he says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. See, the power of God's saving grace and his love reached all the way to Nineveh through Jonah's message, but it didn't stop there. The story of the repentance of the people of Nineveh continued to the time of Jesus. Jesus himself spoke of it in Matthew 12 verse 41 when he said, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. That story reached all the way to the time of Jesus, and that story of the repentance reaches all the way to us here today in East London. So let's look a bit more at repentance. Repentance, if you look at the Greek words, comes from metanoia. I think that's the pronunciation. But meta means to change or to alter. And noia means your thoughts or your mind. So repent means change your mind's perceptions, your mind's predispositions, your purposes. And the Hebrew word for repentance is teshuva. And that's a lot more than just a feeling of guilt or regret. It actually derives from the verb meaning to return. And if you put those two together, you get quite a beautiful definition of what repentance actually is. It means to change your perceptions and purposes and return to God. You see, repentance is what happens when we see God for who He really is. When we see how great and glorious He really is. And then also when we see sin for what, is it, what it is. Sin, repentance is it's different to simply confessing. It's not confessing our sins. It's different to confessing without acknowledging the weight of that sin. Or confessing without realizing or confronting the fact that choosing to sin is actually choosing to place something above God. Repentance is different to confessing without committing to wage war on sin in our lives. Martin Luther, that famous reformer, said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Trying to be a good person, trying to be a more moral person, saying sorry for our sins or even feeling sorry for our sins, these are good things, but they don't go deep enough on their own. True repentance comes from a heart change. When we read in Joel 2 verse 13 it says, Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, or tear your hearts, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. You see, true repentance involves a change in your heart, a deep work in your heart, and it does result in real mourning about our own sinful nature, but then real rejoicing in our salvation through Christ. David, after um, his naughtiness with Bathsheba, wrote the famous Psalm 51, and he said, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken heart and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A contrite heart, a broken heart, is what happens when you're repenting. Repentance isn't about checking boxes. It's not about tearing your clothes or lying in ashes or covering in sackcloth. That's worth nothing if your heart is not actually crying out for forgiveness. God doesn't delight in, let me call them superficial acts. God wants that deep work to be taking place in our hearts. Even John the Baptist spoke about repentance. He said in Luke 3 verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. But how do we actually go about that? What are these fruits? How do we know what genuine repentance even looks like? Thomas Watson, who's a famous 17th century pastor, wrote a, a little piece about six ingredients that show what genuine repentance looks like. And we're going to look at those together. So the first ingredient he called sights of sin. He said, we rightly see ourselves as sinners. We need to acknowledge the fact that we are sinners and that none of us is righteous in our own human nature. And that was echoed in Romans 3 verse 10. No, none is righteous. No, not one. Ingredient number two is sorrow for sin. And this refers to showing true sorrow for our sin and the effect that that sin has in our lives, in our relationships with others. But most importantly, the effect of that sin in our relationship with God. Matt Urbau, who's, a, who's from Crossbridge Community Church, had a lovely quote about it. He said, we can neglect the relational aspect of sin. We can view sin as a failure of performance rather than a failure of intimacy. The only grief that we experience is disappointment in our inability to do what is right, not that we have betrayed the living God. See, unfortunately, our sorrow over sin can be false. It can be counterfeit sorrow. Watson said, some are sorrowful not because sin is sinful, but because it is painful. We are sorrowful because of the consequences of our sin, not because who we have sinned against, and that needs to change. Ingredient number three is confession of sin, and Watson said it like this, Sorrow is such a vehement passion that it must vent. It vents itself at the eyes by weeping, at the tongue by confession. The reality is that sometimes we only confess because we've actually been caught out in sin. We might find ourselves confessing numerous times for the same sin, without ever truly committing to changing or waging war on that sin. And that is not true repentance. Ingredient number four is the shame of sin. You see, all sin makes us guilty, and that guilt was only removed by Jesus' blood, which was spilled for us on the cross. Him, Jesus, who was without sin, never once giving in to temptation, despite being tempted by Satan himself, voluntarily took our sin and the wrath of God upon himself. And that should provoke us to feel shame 
In Ezra 9 verse 6 it says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And that's what we spoke about. As that deep work is happening, you start confronting that sin in your own life. And it is difficult. But thankfully Jesus paid that price. Ingredient number five is hatred of sin. Watson said, Christ is never loved until sin is loathed. And this starts primarily with hatred of sin in our own lives. You might read this and think, well, I hate sin. But I would just caution you to look at it and be honest with yourself. Is your hatred of sin focused primarily on the sin of others and not on your own sin? If so, that could be a sign that your repentance is more about performance than it is about a true heart change. And the last of the ingredients, number six, is turning from sin. Repentance should result in a new heart. It can be a long, it can be a frustrating process. Will I look at something inappropriate when no one else is around? Will I raise my voice in anger? Will I gossip about somebody? But ask yourself this question and let it confront you. How can I continue to indulge in the sin that Christ died to redeem me from? It's a difficult question. How can I continue to indulge in the sin that Christ died to redeem me from? You see, repenting without a real desire to stop actually engaging in sin shows that at least one of those ingredients is missing. But before we fall into the trap of of ticking boxes and counting ingredients, I just want to emphasize this truth. Repentance is not possible in your own strength. It requires the work of the Spirit in us, the sacrifice of the Son for us, and the constant and refreshing grace of God towards us. In Acts 3 verse 19 it says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. You see, the reality is that we are actually like Nineveh. We are full of sin. And we are also like Jonah. We're often reluctant to do God's will, especially when it's inconvenient or it's uncomfortable. But the amazing truth is that just like Nineveh and just like Nineveh, <laughs> Jonah, Nineveh, just like Nineveh and just like Jonah, we have also been forgiven. Our second chance, our redemption, is not of our doing, but it's been paid for by the blood of Christ through His sacrifice on the cross. Christ who came to call us sinners to repentance. In Ephesians 1 verse 7 it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And Jesus echoed this as well in Luke when He said, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem and going forward. We're going to take part in communion now, and the elements are on the side there. Are there any on both sides? So if you can collect the elements, and then 
Um, we're going to pray together, and John has got a, a song for us as well. How can I continue to indulge in that sin that Christ died to redeem me from? That's a difficult question, but it's a question that I want us to have in our hearts while we take part of these elements. Because we have to remember that this is Christ's body and Christ's blood that He shed for us, for us sitting here today on the cross. What is the meaning of that in your life? What is the value of that in your life? And when we look at sin, when we have that opportunity to sin and we go boldly and fast into that sin do we forget this do we forget that this is the body and blood of christ that he shed to save us because without this we wouldn't have eternal community with our heavenly father i'm going to pray for us now and then we're going to worship together while i'm praying you you're welcome to take the elements let's pray father god we acknowledge before you now that we are sinners and we pray that you will do a deep work in our hearts and help us to truly repent. We need to change our perceptions and our purposes and return to you, O Lord. A God who is so powerful that you could cause all to perish, but so loving that you sacrificed your Son on the cross to redeem us and welcome us in, to adopt us into your family and welcome us into eternity with you. We pray today that the immensity of Christ's sacrifice will be at the forefront of our minds and will rend our hearts, let it tear our hearts, Lord, as by the strength that you have given us, we continue to do battle on the sin in our lives, knowing that you have paid the price and that you have made us right with our Heavenly Father. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Amen.